I'll be happy when you get back, right? Uh, but either way, um, uh, we want to start off the new year by uh, going into the Old Testament, um, Second Chronicles chapter 7. Um, for those of you that are looking for that, it's in the Old Testament, obviously, it's, it's tucked in between Kings and Ezra. Um, so it's uh, part of the history of, uh, of the Jews, as, and particularly the kings and the, and the nations as they were developing themselves uh, following God. I must uh, confess that uh, this isn't the message that I wanted to bring, and uh, God and I fought about this for a little while. Um, he won. He always does. It drives me crazy. Um, my plan was to do something different, completely different. In fact, um, uh, Sandy, uh, she's not able to be here this morning, so I know some of the kids were already disappointed. They were planning on having a children's church this morning, first Sunday of the month. Um, but uh, it will be next week. Um, and uh, they were planning on doing a, a message based upon what I was doing um, down there, which is um, we're dealing with more the love and the mercy of God. That was the direction I wanted to go, and I was looking towards um, that path. We were dealing with the holiness of God, and I thought that the holiness and love, they're good content, uh, uh, complementary, and, and I thought that would be a nice way to roll into the new year, um, but I just couldn't seem to shake this nagging thought, this idea, this... Um, uh, this concept. So I've tried to flesh this out the best I can over the last couple, three days as I, was, um, give, as I gave in to what God wanted me to do. And, and I sort of just uh, started to take a tour and a journey, if you will, searching for something. And I want to sort of invite you to come along with me on this journey that I took and that I'm still taking, um, a journey that will hopefully lead us uh, where God wants us to be. And so I've entitled this sermon, uh, Temple Time, right? Uh, because we are here, we're in God's house, and we are going to spend some time talking about God's house. And so I direct your attention to one of the more interesting parts of the Old Testament, um, the part where, granted, there's a lot of interesting parts. This is very interesting in the sense that we have um, an opportunity to see a window, if you will, into God inaugurating his temple. This is the backstory here is very simple. Um, the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. In that time, they built this really neat temple with badger skins and crazy things, right? With all kinds of beautiful stones and, and neat stuff. And, and they commissioned a priesthood to be able to go in and out of this temple. And that tabernacle followed them in the wilderness. And then when they got into the promised land, they set that tabernacle up and really didn't take it down to speak of. I mean, a couple times. But for the most part, they didn't. It sort of just stayed there. And during that time, uh, God raised up different judges and leaders and eventually got to Samuel. And some of you are in Mike's class and you guys are dealing with, you already dealt with Samuel in his time. Now you're getting into the life of David and Saul as his kingship is maturing in that, in that great story in the first and second Samuel. But, um, but eventually it gets to David's son, right? David and David's son. So David is there, and David desperately wants to build a temple, build a house, a house of stone, something that's solid so that people can worship in something that's more permanent than a tent. They figure that they want to move away from that nomadic identity into a, a people that are dwelling in the promised land, that build the houses and stay. They're no longer following the herds and wandering. They're now in a solid place. And, and David knew that his people, to be able to be the people that God wanted them to be in, to that place, that they needed to have a, a, a tangible location, a place that's solid and strong. And so he wanted to build it, and God said, no. And he said, please, God, and he said, no. And so there was that back and forth, so finally David said, well, how about if I just gather the materials? And God's like, 
Okay. And so we have now Solomon is here. And Solomon comes on the scene. He takes the materials his father has developed. He brings in a few more. He brings craftsmen from all over the world. And he begins to build this and craft this magnificent house that God wants, um, that he wants to God to have. And at that point, they said, do all this work. But you see, the sad part is, is at that moment, Sam, or, or Solomon is sitting there and he's getting ready to pray. And you'll see that at the end of chapter 6, um, starting in verse 40. This is his prayer. He's built everything. He's got everything set up. He's got all the priests trained. He's got all the stuff where it needs to be. He's got the napkins where the napkins go, the doilies where the doilies go. And he's ready now to say this prayer. And he says, now, oh my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. That's a great way to start, right? He's asking God. He says, please pay attention to us. This is the place that we want to offer prayers to you. And he says, now therefore rise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O God, be clothed with salvation and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away your face from your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. So he lays this prayer out. And you can almost see, like at that moment, I almost want to be there. You know, I would love to be able to go back in time and be able to see this moment. And you can almost see, there's like, a, I, I imagine in my mind that there was, a, there was a hush, there was a lull, there was a momentary pause between verses 42 and 1 of chapter 7 as he finishes that prayer and the silence reigns on the courtyard. And we wonder, is this going to be acceptable? Is this house going to be the one that God chooses? Is he going to be satisfied and happy or is he going to strike us all dead? Is this the time that God finally comes into his place in Jerusalem, the holy city that he's chosen to be his place, his, his spot? Is this going to be the moment that God finally says it? Or is he just going to say, eh, I don't think so. Not really like the way you hang the drapes, right? The color of the carpet could be just a little bit more green. I like green. We went with chocolate. Probably a better choice. Still, we don't know. There's a pause. And then we see in chapter 7, verse 1, this is the main part of the text. And now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. As the son, on all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped. They gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness lasts forever. And we see that word loving kindness repeated yet again. Those of you that have sat around and listened to my sermons over the last several years, you know that I love the word loving kindness, that that Hebrew word hesed is a beautiful word, and it goes far beyond the words loving kindness that we created to define this in English. You guys know, if you've been listening to any of my sermons in the past, that that word hesed goes beyond that into this covenantal love, this steadfast, never changing, always there love. And you see that, that, that Solomon invoked that. He says, remember your, your covenantal love to your servant. David. He is appealing to God's covenantal nature of love and commitment to the people of Israel. And then we see that that 
that covenantal love was manifested as the Shekinah glory of God filled with radiance the temple and the fire fell from the sky and ignited and burnt up the offerings. In, um, uh, in 1 Kings verse eight, chapter 18, verse 38, they explain a little more. This fire fell down and just totally took everything, the dust, everything. There was nothing left. Completely consumed it as they, as they put that offering for the Lord, the fire accepted it. One theologian called it a gigantic holocaust ignited by fire from heaven. Wow, that's an interesting way of looking at it, as it licked everything up. It's pretty powerful if you think about it. From verses 4 through 11, we see that that Solomon is uh, gathering some things together. There's some consecration that's going on, and and there's um, uh, numbers and some individuals that were there, and they talked about the different assembly. In verse 11, you see that that Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and was successfully completed, and all that that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord was in its place. So, So everything is done. Everything is set. And then God is filling his temple. So much so that nobody could go into the temple. The glory of God was that powerful. And then we see in verse 12, God now speaks, right? As though the fire from heaven and the Shekinah glory that's eking and radiating out from the temple wasn't enough, that God actually had to speak to Solomon a step further. So we see this word of God appearing. And the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen, look at these words, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name, humble, we know this verse, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be opened, my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. It's a pretty powerful start at the beginning of this, this, this segment as, as God is responding now in words, physical words to Solomon as he's, as he's telling him exactly his response to all that Solomon has done. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to verse 16 because he has to describe what, we, what he said in verse 12 when he said, this is my place that I have chosen for myself. He goes on in verse 17 and says, for now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name will be here forever. My eyes and my heart will be here perpetually. And then we get to verse 17, right? As for you, This is a singular you. He's talking to Solomon. He says, if you, Solomon, if you, Solomon, walk before me as your father did, even according to all that I've commanded to you, Solomon, and you, Solomon, will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish a royal throne as I covenanted with your father do, saying that you shall not lack a man to be a ruler in Israel. He's giving them an if-then clause, a promise. He says, if you do this, I will do this. Now, those of you that are biblical scholars, we got lots of them here, you know that Solomon didn't do this, and so God didn't do that, right? We know that Solomon did not live a godly life, that he did not do all the things he wanted to do later on, and consequently, God had to chasten him, and that situation changed. God doesn't change, we do. But then we get to verse 19. See, up to this point, he's just talking to Solomon, right? He says, if you do this, Solomon, if you do this, 
But then he gets to verse 19, and, and if you underline things, I encourage you to underline that word you. But if you, this is a plural in the Hebrew. This is not a singular. This is you. If for those of you that are Southern like me, if, if the word is like y'all, right? If y'all, if y'all will turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before y'all, then you shall go and serve other gods, and you, and you shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, my land, which I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among other peoples. For as this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord. And the God of the fathers who brought them from the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them, and therefore he has brought all this adversity to them. Wow, that's a pretty, pretty tough statement, right? So he gave Solomon one. He said, Solomon, if you do the wrong, we do this to our kids as parents, right? We tell them if you do X, then, then Z is going to happen. And, if, and there's no middle ground. If you do X, that's what's going to happen. And we as parents know that there has to be follow through, right? If you tell a kid that I'm going to pop you on the butt, if you touch this and they touch it, and then you say, well, you've just missed it. You've missed an opportunity to be a parent. And we know God didn't do that with his children. We know that he, they, he did bring them into captivity. He did bring them aside. And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, well, where, where we're going with this? What's the direction with this? Well, we're just starting this journey, okay? And so I hope your thumbs are active. Tom, are your thumbs ready? Okay, because I know some of you got the electronic Bible. You probably do be faster than me. But for those of you that are old school, Phil, like you and I, oh, wait, you got the electronic bar. Oh, man. You're killing me. There you go. Chris has got it. Okay, those of you old school like Chris, Chris, I love you. Um, we're going, to be, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to be turning. And I thought about this. I thought to myself, well, maybe I should put the tabs in it, you know, to make it easier for me. No, no, I'm going to be just like you guys. I'm going, to, I'm going to go searching through this because I want you guys to have that physical act that I had as God was leading me on this journey. Because the question I'm asking myself is, this temple, right? This temple was obviously important to God. I mean, look what he did. It's not the first time that the fire came down from heaven and, and picked up sacrifices, right? It's not the first time the Shekinah glory of God came down and just radiated outside the tabernacle. This happened in, in Leviticus chapter 9 when the tabernacle was installed, right? And so this is nothing new to God. He does this when he, when he is inaugurating something, when he's, when he's bringing something about. He says, he says I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it in such a way that the whole world's going to go, whoa! Look, that's what he said right there. He says that, that it's gonna, people are going to walk past this house, and they're going to be astonished. Of course, they're going to be astonished to see it empty and devastated. We don't want that to happen. But the astonishment was there nonetheless. This was important to God. And so if God was important, and we know, because the Bible says that God never changes, right? He's the beginning. He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And if he loved the idea of the temple back in those days, then we have to ask ourselves, now that Jesus has come, and he's, he went and lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross for our sins, and he died up there and said it is finished. They took him down. They put him in the tomb. They waited for three days. He rose again. He visited the disciples. He said, hey, I'm me. And here's my sign. You can see the holes in my hands. I did this for you. Now you can come into, the, into, into heaven and, and look at God and call him father. You can now be part of the family. Now that that has all happened. Where's the temple? Where's the temple? Where's the church? Where are we? Right? I needed to know that. And I was, I was worried about this. I was nervous about it. Because I, I, I saw how God dealt with people who are careless with his holiness. Right? We talked about that last few weeks. 
I mean, think about it. The one poor guy, um, Uzzah, who was doing a good thing, reaching back to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling in a pothole. And God killed him. Moses, who, who served God faithfully for 40 years in a moment, in a moment of sadness, frustration, and anger at the people, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And he was denied the right to go into the Holy Land. It seems pretty extreme. You look at Saul, king. Talk about King Saul, who wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to have God's blessing before he goes and, and takes the children of Israel into battle. And he calls for the man of God, and the man of God was late. Mike, was it seven days that he was late? I think it was seven days that, that Samuel tarried and waited. And for seven days, imagine if, if you guys showed up here Sunday morning and Noel. And you, when you did your thing, right? You started off with the music, Kendra plays, we get, you guys are all going and you're singing, and halfway through the service, when it's about time for the sermon, Tom prays and still know how. And what if Casey gets a, gets a text message, and she's probably excited about this, she gets a text message, say, hey, I won't be here, see you next Sunday for me. Will you guys be happy with that? I don't think Saul was very happy with that. Now, granted, we know what happened with Saul. What did he do? Doing the right thing for the wrong reason, or right reason, wrong? I don't know. He did something wrong. What did he do? He offered the sacrifice in place of Samuel because he was tired of waiting. He wanted to go forward. He didn't want to be patient. He was doing what he thought was the right thing. And what happened? The Spirit of God left him. The kingship over Israel departed from his house. He was denied the privilege of having his son follow in his footsteps, and ultimately it destroyed every member in his family. Wow. So you're saying that God is so big, so holy, so fantastically transcendent that if we take his, his glory for, example, for, 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 for granted, if we take his holiness for granted, then we could, we could have the same problem. Paul, Paul talks about it to the church in Corinth. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And yeah, I think the idea of where the temple is is important. And I think we need to look at that. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to the book of Acts chapter 2. Remember how I said that. Um, remember how I said that the. Uh, this is nothing new with God, right? That He enjoys doing the same things over and over again because we need the repetition to teach us. Notice in chapter two, we got something going on. We got something going on. Chapter 2, verse 1. And the day of Pentecost had come, and they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it was filled the whole house that they were sitting in. And there appeared to them tongues of fire, distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. And now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men of every nation. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because one of them, each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. And we know the rest of the story that comes out as the fire fell from heaven, as God inaugurated his new temple. And we're not done moving. You can keep your hand there. We may come back to Acts 2. We may not. Um, but I want you to move over to Second First Timothy chapter 6. I'm just going to keep moving down the list. First Timothy chapter 6. It's the last chapter right before... 2 Timothy. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 13 through 16. Look what it says here. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that, I, that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about the proper, at the proper time. And he who is blessed, who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has, has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul is telling Timothy and those that read Timothy's letter that there is something powerful. There's a power, powerful here. There's something amazing here. He says that, that you, Timothy, and everybody that listens to this, everybody that, 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 that accepts Christ as their Savior and, and moves with them, every one of us have the ability to join ourselves with an immortal God. Think about this for a minute. The Shekinah glory of God that was radiating out of the temple, that glory that filled it was so powerful and so strong at the moment in, 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 the, in the Chronicles, Second Chronicles, we see that that power was so powerful that the people, the, the, the ones that were trained, the priests that were, had the ability to go in and out of the temple without being killed, these individuals weren't even allowed to go in because the glory was shining so bright. And then we see Paul talking about that same thing. Look at it. verse 16. The one who possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be all glory and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, that powerful God that radiates out from the Shekinah glory of God through his sacrifice on the cross has allowed us the privilege to be part of the body of Christ, right? Part of that, that church that he's inaugurating. We now become part of that. Notice what you said in verse Acts. We're not, you don't have to turn back there, but think about this for a minute. Paul called this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, a mystery, a mystery, He says, this is a mystery, but he's speaking in reference to Christ and the church. In verse chapter 5, he was talking about this discourse in marriage, but he, he ends it by saying, I'm giving this reference to you by giving it as a reference from Christ and the church. He loves us so much that he wanted his church to be inaugurated in this way. And so we see the fire falling on the people. Now, what is different between Acts chapter 2 and... Chronicles chapter 7, Leviticus chapter 9. In those two chapters in the Old Testament, the fire fell on the sacrifice. In this case, the fire fell on the people. Did God change? No. So, the fire falls on the sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice? We are. The Bible says we are living sacrifices. We are present ourselves that way. We are the sacrifice as we live to serve God, as he brings us where he wants us to. No, we're not done. We're still going to keep going because I think there's something that's really important here. As the fire fell on the sacrifices, the individuals that were there, as they shared the Holy Spirit, as they moved forward, we know because the apostle has told us that we are living sacrifices. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you're over near there, it's not that far. Just scoot back a couple pages. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Let's see what he has to say there. 
Those of you that memorized your Bible, memorized Sunday school time, right? Memorizing Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There you go. So, gotcha. <laughs> I always do that whenever I'm looking, right? Galatians, Ephesians, right after Galatians, before Philippians. You can't miss it. Galatians, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Look what it says. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles. Guys, we were all Gentiles in the flesh. We were called Uncertain, part of the uncircumcision. So, and by the so-called circumcision, that means there is a difference between the Jews and the Hebrew or, and the Gentiles. There is a div- division between them. But Paul doesn't want that division to maintain. He says, which is performed in the flesh as human hands. Remember that you were at, the, at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, who... For you, uh, you who formerly were afar off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier between the, them, the two of them, the dividing wall, by admonishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinance, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." that we might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross and by having put to death the enemy. Now, it doesn't stop there. He continues on if you read. You see, it doesn't stop with that. He says, he came to and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for, though, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So that when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now we're in God's household. We're getting closer and closer to God. We're not yet completely there, but we're working out. Look what he says. He's continuing. He says, you have been, this, this household has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It continues on. Christ the himself being the chief cornerstone. We see the foundation, the cornerstone being laid. And he continues on. But the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are the temple. We are the ones where God is choosing. Now, remember those words back in Chronicles? You remember 12 and 16, where he said, this is my place that I'm putting my name on. This is my house. This is my stamp. It's there. Done. I am here. That's where we are. You ask me who the church is, we are. You ask me what the temple is, we are. You ask me what that means, it doesn't mean a house built by human hands. I like this sanctuary, it's beautiful. I love the history of the people that went before us. I love the new carpet, I love the drapes and the things that we have when we have drapes. I know we don't right now, but normally we do. And I enjoy those things, and I enjoy being able to come in here and get that worshipful sense. But the truth of the matter is, when it's all said and done, and the day is ended, this is still just a building, right? It's a building with, with, with bones, I guess, if you will, and, and, and nails and, and other things, but it's not the house of God. We are the house of God. Amen. And if no one shows up here to worship, if nobody comes into this place to, to make it the house of God, then it's going to be an empty, wasted building. And you can almost hear the prophecy that was spoken by God to the people of Israel at the end of Chronicles. He said that if you don't do these things, your building will be a byword, a proverb, a, a cautionary tale to all other churches around. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be a cautionary tale to the church world. 
we got a lot of churches on the peninsula. I mean, think about it. Just drive from Soldotna to Nikiski. And you, I mean, I swear, it's like every 10 seconds you could throw a rock out one side of the window or the other and hit a church. There's a lot of them. And I wonder, how many of these are filled? How many of these are overflowing? And I think to myself, well, gosh, if everybody was, was, if every church in the peninsula were filled, you know, we'd still have lots of people not in church. There's still a lot of people on the peninsula that aren't saved. But I ask myself, those aren't, those aren't houses of God. They aren't churches. We call them that. That's not what they are. We are the church. We are the body. Paul continues to talk about this. In fact, in fact, before we go to Paul, let's go to Peter. I like bringing Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, flip over there real quick. Oftentimes Peter gets overlooked because he's just got two short little books. But I tell you, the power in, in 1 Peter is just tremendous. I think I spent like four or five months last year just focusing on 1 Peter um, in my own private study, and I tell you, I still didn't plumb all the depths of it. It's a beautiful book, and I encourage you in your own study to go ahead and, and look at that. So First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 5. He says, actually, let's go back to verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, that you may be grow in, in respect to salvation, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone. We know he's a living stone, which he's a chief cornerstone, which has been rejected by men, again, that chief cornerstone, but is the choice and precious in the sight of God. Here in verse 5, look what it says. You also are living stones. What these living stones do? They're being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk a little more about that chief cornerstone. But we, we jump so much on that chief cornerstone, we forget to read that we are the living stones, those lively stones that are being built up to glorify God. We are the temple. We are the temple. You know, one of the things that we had a rule when we first put the carpet in. You guys remember the rule? I won't ask you to repeat it. You should know it, right? It's on a sign right outside the door. Don't bring food and drink in here, right? That's what we don't want to do. You notice that there's no water bottles up here, although, man, I can tell you, I, could, I can go for the glass of water. thought about asking Caleb to get me a cup of water in the middle of it, and I'm thinking, that's, that'd be a terrible thing to do in the middle of the sermon. I'm going to be talking about the floor and everything else, and I know that that wouldn't be a good example, right? But we talk about this. We talk about not bringing the food and drink in here because we want to have respect for God's house, right? But we also know, as we mentioned, that God's house isn't the building, it's the people, but we still put time and effort in this to make it a nice place so people can come and be worshipful. But still, we need to ask ourselves... Who is, what is, how is this temple? Now, there isn't anybody in here that wouldn't be just absolutely furious if we came in on Sunday morning and there was spray paint on the inside of the walls with all kinds of words. I don't know anybody here that would, that would, that would come on home and say, come, come in and say, wow, that's exciting, right? No. Nobody would be happy if we came in and all this carpet that we just recently laid down was ripped up and, 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 and just in pieces and tatters. And nobody here would be very happy about that, right? And if we're not happy when, when a physical place that we gather together to worship God would be hurt or damaged or destroyed, then how much more should we be upset if the true body of Christ, the true house, the true temple of the living God would be destroyed, right? Huh. 
See, as I'm going through this journey and I'm, and I'm, I'm starting to go through this, I'm seeing what God is trying to bring me to because he wants me to see something and I'm not really sure exactly what it is. And in the midst of all this, I kept having this, this 1 Corinthians thrown at me, you know? 1 Corinthians kept coming at me. And I'm like, well, where in 1 Corinthians, Lord? Because there's a lot of stuff in Corinthians. I mean, you can get lost in the stuff in Corinthians, right? So I'm thinking to myself, there has to be something. What is it? Then all of a sudden, chapter 3 starts appearing in my brain as I begin to really mature this thought. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I appreciate your uh, patience as we're going through this journey, as I'm taking you through my mind, if you will, as, um, as I bring you through my journey, as, as bringing um, about this message that God put in me. He says, in chapter 3, starting in verse 16, we see that, that God, God, through Paul, is speaking to the church in Corinth, and there's a big discussion going on, and up to this point, Paul is really laying into them. He's telling them exactly where they're at. He's talking, talking about this body of believers. He's talking about this body of, of, of individuals that are gathered together, that are seeking to, to serve him. He says, you guys are my expression. You're God, you guys are God's, my expression. God is saying, my expression on earth. In the city of Corinth, you are it. You are the ones that are bringing light to a dark world there in Corinth. And believe me, Corinth was a dark place. Paul is trying to get them back on track. He's trying to inject a little truth into them. And he's talking to these people. And you see this, and you don't get it as much in, in the English as you do in the, in the, in the original Greek. But you get this plurality of spokenness that's coming out of Paul's discussion here. We see this in verse 16. He says, do you, or I could even say y'all, do y'all know that y'all are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells within y'all. And if any man destroys the temple, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you all are. Wow. Wow. Now, I've, I've looked at this verse, and I've heard it preached in many ways. And I know there are preachers out there that would probably like to crucify me um, if, if, if they heard what I was about to say. Because I don't feel like that God was talking about individuals. And we are such an individualistic culture. We keep loving to put ourselves in, in, in the place of, of we're the only ones that are here, right? We like to be gods of our own creation. You say, well, no, we're not. Yeah, we are. I mean, most of us even have our own shrines built to our, to, to, our, to our godhood, right? We control every aspect of our life, and then we throw everything up on social media. We have pictures, we have, we have information, we have knowledge, and we have all of our shrines out there, right? And then we invite you guys to look at our shrines, because what good is a shrine, Mike, if nobody can see it, right? If you're hiding the shrine and nobody can worship at your shrine, then is it really a shrine? No, it's not. And so we throw it out there for everybody to see, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want to call it, all that stuff, Twitter, we just throw it out there. And, every, and then we invite everybody, because everybody in America has the right for an opinion. Isn't that right, Phil? Everybody is allowed to have their own opinion, good, bad, or indifferent. And everybody's got one, right? I mean, I watch the news. I get so frustrated. I'll be honest with you, I'm taking a sabbatical from the news. I think I'll maybe a seven-year sabbatical. I'm not even going to watch it anymore. Because I've come to the conclusion that 99.99999 go on to eternity percent of the news is just an opinion on the news, right? All you're getting is some dude or dudette's opinion on the news. I don't want to hear their opinion on the news. I got my own opinion. Just give me the news. But everybody has an opinion. Think about it. You see, you scroll through that. How many of you get frustrated when you throw a really cool picture up on Facebook? And some of you say, well, I don't have Facebook. And I'm good. I'm glad you guys don't. But if you did, how do you throw a really cool picture up there on Facebook and, and you, you work? Because I see the girls do this in the schools, right? They, I mean, I didn't realize this, but you can actually hold the camera in the right way, you know, to make yourself look really good, right? And so they do. They, they hold themselves out and they get up there and they, 
You know, I don't even know how they do that. They throw their lips in funny ways. They snap the picture. I don't even know how they can do it. You have to be a contortionist to be able to get the picture snapped and not move any of this, right? I can't do it. And so they do that. They throw it up there, and then they wait. They look at Facebook, and they wait. One like, two likes, 30 likes, 50 likes. Woo, I'm liked. But they look to see who is liking it, right? That's so stupid. Has anybody here been asked, hey, did you see that picture I put on Facebook? Well, yeah, I did. Why didn't you like it? Well, I did like it. Well, you didn't say so. It's crazy. But we do this crap. It's wrong. We are the temple of God, right? We come into this building to worship someone else, Jesus Christ. We come into this building to gather together with other people to worship Jesus Christ. We don't come into this room worshiping ourselves because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. We come into this building because this is where God has called us to be for the moment. But the temple is not this space. The temple is us. Now, just like there is nobody here that if we were alive during the days when, when Solomon was doing his thing and the temple was going and blowing, there is nobody here that would take a sledgehammer and start breaking the sides of that temple and live. I mean, they would kill you flat out, right? I mean, you would, you would rush the thing with a, with a sledgehammer. Before you got 10 steps, you'd be done. Nobody would even conceive of that because that was the great temple. That was the house of the Lord. There's people who would not let that temple be destroyed. In fact, that's ultimately what they killed Jesus for, right? He said he would tear the temple down. He realized he was referring to his own body, right? Because he was giving us an illustration of what the temple really is. It's not made by stone or hands of man. It's made by God and God alone. And God made us to be his image bearers, not this building. Hmm. Okay. So that means then that if this isn't the building and we know that none of us want to destroy this building because we have a, a particular feeling towards it, right? We believe this is where God's people gather. So we would not want to, to destroy this building. Then what does it mean when Paul says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him? That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, Phil? Almost as harsh as taking a divorce. It says destroy. And if any man destroy... If, now, it may be a different version. Ver My version is the New American Standard. It says, God will destroy him. If any man destroys the temple of God, I'm sure you could put defile in there. I don't have a problem with that. And God will destroy him in the temple of God. That seems extreme. Like taking a kingship away from a guy who just wanted to do the right thing but didn't do it the right way. Or taking away the ability to go into the promised land because he, in a fit of upsetness and anger at the people who were frustrating and, and anger creating, hit the rock instead of spoke to it. Like a guy who just reached out and touched the ark to keep it from falling because he thought that that was what God wanted want him to do, just not doing it the right way, right? Wow. Then what is this temple that God is talking about that, could, that if, we, if we defile it, that God will destroy us? See, I think it comes back to what I said before. We all live in this age where everybody has an opinion, right? We all share them. We all try to do this. The, re the problem is, is that when we share our opinions on individuals, we share our opinions about the, the pictures we see on Facebook. That's easy because you got a degree of separation. And the sad part is, is we do this all the time, Right? How many times have we gone to lunch after church and we've, we've just laid in to the music 
And we've laid into how Phil is doing. So Phil, I tell you, man, being laid up, it's been rough. I don't like your job. I want you to know that. You can have it back. This is not easy. It's like herding cats, and they're just crazy cats, right? Yes. This is not easy. We do this. You know, we, 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 we rip people apart. So if I read this correctly, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I, if I'm wrong, I'll stand down. I don't have a problem with that. But if we are the temple of the living God, and God dwells within us, and we are where the Spirit of God dwells, and it says here, the body, if anyone destroys the temple of God, what does that mean? Every time we rip a brother or sister in Christ apart, we're destroying the temple. We're defiling the body. Every time. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. One theologian went so far as to say that when we do use self-deprecation, right, where we say that we are not so great as individuals, and, I, and a lot of times I do that in my sermons. I, I like to be the goat. Like, I like to be the bad guy, the, the one that, that isn't the, the one that's doing right. And I like to have my wife or the kids be the good ones because it makes it easier because I want to build them up. I don't want to, and I don't mind tearing myself down because I want to be humble. I want to be, I want to be the kind of person that, that, that doesn't care about myself but cares more about God. But every time we even tear down ourselves in front of other individuals, we are potentially defiling the body of Christ, the temple of God, because we are his workmanship. That's pretty heavy if you think about it. It's pretty heavy. I want you to flip over in Ephesians. This will be our last, well, last book we go to, but it won't be the last verse we look at. Me in Ephesians again, just the first chapter. I want you to see something. First chapter, verse 4. It says, But he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption of his sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind of intention, the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon his beloved. He chose us. I've said this before. I don't know why he chose me. I haven't got a clue. I only know that God chose me. And I have to live on that. The Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Now, we're still in the book of Ephesians. I want you to flip over just really quick because this is the big plan, right? This is where we're at. A lot of you are saying, well, what does all this mean? Where are we going to go with this? How are we going to take this out? What are we going to do with this this week? I think the big plan is about to be manifested itself starting in chapter 3 in Ephesians. As, as Paul was writing this masterful work discussing spiritual um, awareness, discussing spiritual warfare, discussing all the things that a Christian man and woman living for God need to know. He, he talks about marriage. He talks about love. He talks about how to fight the devil, Resisting him, and, and the Bible says that we know if we resist him, he'll flee. So starting in chapter 3, starting in the first verse, Paul is now writing. He's bringing this more personal. He's saying, for this reason, reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed, this is why I'm writing this, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. He says before it was in brief. 
But now I'm going to flesh this out for you just a little bit more. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into this mystery. We talked about this mystery earlier on. That there's a mystery in this. And Paul wants to bring this out. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. That's why they were given a temple and a tabernacle. That's why they had the opportunity to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. He says, in the past, they were not, was not revealed to them. His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that's how it was been made known now. Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, every la- the very least of all the saints... Paul is saying this, me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles to the Gentiles and to the, about the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So the, and here it is, verse 10, so the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Here's the, thing, here's the deal, guys. God created everything. You want to know why this is? You want to know why we're the church? Why we're here? Look at verse 10. We were created for this purpose. So the manifold wisdom of God might be revealed to the entire universe so that the heavenly beings, the earthly dwelling place, everybody here in between will be able to see that we, the church, are the exact expression of God's love to the universe. It's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? The manifold wisdom of God might be revealed. We, the church, are part of God's manifold wisdom so that we can show the universe his plan and his pathway. And what is that pathway? That is the gospel. So Paul says, the gospel. The good news. And heaven help anybody that seeks to tear that true temple of God down. So think about that. I know there's some of you out there that are thinking, man, that's interesting. I'm not sure I'd really understand it completely. Well, I don't expect you to. You're not safe, right? For some of you out there that aren't saved, you have no real way to understand this because you've never really experienced this. I know that people want this. I hear this all the time, especially the millennial generation. They want to attach themselves to something bigger than themselves, something more amazing, something truly stupendous. And they keep looking for that big thing, right, that they can latch onto and go. Let me tell you what the big thing is that we need to latch onto. The big thing is Jesus Christ. The big thing that he came into this universe, he didn't have to. He came to the cross and died on it. Not so that countless people could get saved, so that tall Tom, you, could get saved. Period. He would have came just for you, brother. Fortunately, he didn't just come for you. That'd be a real lonely place, right? Just like the little Delaney sitting down here in the morning. It'd be a real lonely place if it was just tall Tom in heaven. It'd be lots of room, right? You could stretch out, stretch out. You put like, you know, have like a garden over there. You have like your, your moose range over here, you know. Have, have a nice deer stand in the back, you know. Just sort of enjoy yourself, space out, and not have to worry about anybody. But that's not the way it is. We will have all that room, right? Because heaven is infinite. But we're going to be there with everybody. Everybody else has accepted Christ their Savior. And that's the message, right? The message is that while we live on this earth now, as we go through our trials and our struggles and tribulation, those of us that are called according to his purpose, we have the hope that everything is going to work out for his plan, for his good, so that we know he's moving us in the right direction. But for those that are dying 
in their sin that have never accepted Christ their Savior, they're down here at this spot, and they're looking over at you, and they're like, how can you smile? The world is horrible. And you turn over to them and say, well, it's simple, because I don't have my eyes on the world. I don't have my eyes on you. I have my eyes on Jesus. And I'm following him because I love him. Because I know he has my best interest at hearts. So I'm saying this. If, you don't, if you're out there now and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I feel for you. I have no idea what it's like anymore. I don't even remember. Phil, I don't even remember what it's like to live by luck and chance. I don't even remember what it's like to have no hope. I, all I remember is Jesus. I accepted Christ my Savior when I was 13 years old. 48 years old now. 48. And I hope and pray that the longer that I go, the less I remember what it's like to live without him. But I never want to forget where I've come from. Scripture tells us that. Because it's by remembering where we come from that reminds us where we're going and gives us the opportunity to be truly thankful for the mystery and the, and the amazing salvation that he gives us. Now, I've been very careful not to use those faithful words in conclusion because I know they're keeping track in the back. But I think we're done. If you don't know Jesus, the altar is going to be open. If you want to know a little more about this mystery, this plan we've talked about, the altar will be open. If you just want to have a moment where God reveals to you that you truly are a stone fit for the purpose of being used in this temple, and you're saying to yourself, I don't know exactly where I fit, but I love being part of it, come down front, ask God to reveal it to you. Maybe you're going through a crisis and a trial, and you're wondering how this momentary frustration is going to impact your future. And Maybe you need a second touch from the Lord as he reveals to you that he has everything in his hands. Whatever drives you to this altar, whatever brings you down front, whatever makes you want to bend your knee before a holy God and say, whatever your will be done, I wish to be a living sacrifice in your temple as part of your temple, then please reveal that to me. I encourage you, use this altar. That's what it's for. And I cannot stress enough, you know, we're Baptists, right? We believe heavily in evangelism. We believe in heavy in salvation. And I can tell you this, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, please don't leave here today. I was talking to Brenda Krim just the other day. You know Brenda, we love Brenda. And we were talking something similar about this. And um, we were talking about eternity and what it's going to be like when we step out of this world, right? And she was agreeing with me that our concept of the eternity and the holiness of God is infinitesimal in comparison to where he's bringing us. But she also agreed with me that she would never want to go back to a time in her life where she didn't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you, please come down front. As Baptists, we want to see this happen. And we want to help you. So the altar's open. For the rest of you, I encourage you to come as the, as the Spirit leads. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and let's go ahead and bow before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much. We know that this journey was a long one. We know that um, as we're looking at our time, we're thinking to ourselves, man, we've been here a while. And I know some of us are hot and ready to go home. But Father, I pray that the time that we've spent here was, was well justified, that we can take this time and use it for your glory and your honor. 
that we might be able to take this message about the fact that we are your temple, we are your living sacrifices, and carry it to a lost and dying world. Father, we can use the example of Delaney and Kelsey this morning and realize that we are always able to grow your kingdom better if we're all working towards that same goal rather than using just one or two. Father, I ask that you'll guide us in our discussion and our thought process this week as we seek not to tear down your temple but to build it up, as we seek not through slander or gossip or misuse of your scripture, but yet to see your mercy and grace be transcendent, that we see your house, us, being lifted up to this community so that we might see your son's name be magnified, that all men in this community might be drawn to your temple. Well, we open up this altar. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, please don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. We ask this now in the name of your son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.